you, may you grow in our eyes today as your word is unfolded. I pray you would guard and guide my words to serve your great purposes of showing us your glory now through, through this uh, account of it. Uh, may your spirit work mightily in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, as you can already tell, we're confronted in pretty extraordinary ways uh, with the, really, I think the overall question is, what is God really like? Not what do we imagine that he's like, what do we want him to be like, but what is God really like, really? There's a story told of a kindergarten teacher who was observing her classroom of children while they're drawing, and it was her pattern to walk around the room while they're drawing during this creative time and look at their work, watch them do it. And one little girl was especially intent, and she approached her and she said, "Uh, what is it that you're drawing? And the little girl, without looking up, said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher paused and said, but no one knows what God looks like. And without missing a beat or looking up from her drawing, the girl replied, they will in a minute. (laughs) Kathleen Long Bostrom writes in one of her children's books, "Um, I can't see you, God, so please give me a clue. Do you look like me? And do I look like you? And partly of necessity and partly out of ignorance, I think, when we think about what God is like, We think that he is like us on a good day, only bigger, okay? You know, sweater vest, beard, really big, okay? That's God. That's what we think about. And uh, passages like the one we are considering today are a sobering reminder that God is most decidedly not like us, not even on our best days. Theologians have grappled with this and they've come up with a phrase. They say, God is wholly other. He's not like us. He's not even like what we imagine him to be. And that's why our attention to such provocative um, passages of Scripture, such as the one we're going to look at today, are so, so important. Um, now, having said that, if you heard the passage read and you were paying attention, you know that there are some elephants in the room. There's some things in this passage that must be addressed that are of extraordinary difficulty. And it's not my intent or within my ability to settle those problems. But I do think today that we have a good chance to see God in these troublesome passages in such a way that it strengthens our faith in Him um, and does not take away from it. So if you are uh, not yet in the practice of Praying for your pastor while he preaches today would be an outstanding day to start. So, uh, again, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 2, the back end. We'll work through most of chapter 3 from there. And in Deuteronomy so far, we've seen God is renewing his covenant with a new generation of people. The old generation has died out under the judgment of God for their sin in the desert. There's a whole new generation getting ready. They're on the verge of entering the promised land. And God is renewing their covenant by first reviewing their history with him over the last 40 or so years. Um, To do that, Moses is preaching a series of sermons. We're in the first one. It is a historical sermon. He's looking at how, how God has judged his people's sin in the desert, yet has been with them all the way. And as we look at the, the passage we're dealing with today... Um, it picks up with what we talked about last week. God 
um, led his people through three different kings' lands last week and said, no, you may not possess this land, not a footprint's worth of it. Today, God says, yes, you may possess, you must possess this land. Go up and possess the land. So they are learning how to obey God in a whole new way. Last week, it was when God says no. This week, it's when God says yes. Go and do this thing, uh, terrifying though it may be. And they, they, this is another case, one of those rare cases in this sermon, where Israel is exemplary in their behavior. They obey God in this matter. They trust God in this matter. So throughout the passage we're looking at today, God repeatedly says, I have given you this land. I am your sovereign king of all the earth, and I have promised you this land. Um, Do not give in to fear and go up and possess the land. Um, Repeatedly, God is going to address this matter of fear. In chapter 2, verse 25, right at the beginning of our passage, God says, This day I'll begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Over in chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Do not fear him, one of the kings, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. So God essentially says, Um, don't be afraid of them. They're going to be afraid of you when it's all said and done. And it's so critical that God addresses fear here. You remember when the spies went into this promised land, they came back with an amazing report of the land. But they were troubled by two things. It It was this fear of these two things that kept God's people from obeying him and going into the land. Back in, way back in chapter 1, Moses is recounting it, the beginning of the sermon. He says, You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. So there are two things they were intensely afraid of that kept them from obeying God. Giants in the land and the fortified cities that they lived in. In our passage, Moses' sermon, he addresses those two fears specifically head on as he recounts their recent history. In chapter 2, he talks about the cities. He says, from Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. It's echoing the language of their fears. And he's saying, now, you've gone into the land and conquered those very cities. They weren't too high for you. In chapter 3, when he moves into the second king's territory, he says, we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. He says, we took them. We took them. God has overcome your fears. Um, And so uh, he addresses the the matter of the cities. He also addresses their fear of the giants. And he recounts, in very interesting way, a description of this king, unfortunately, as Daniel said, named Og. 
It says, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. It's a large bed. If you took two twin beds and put them side by side, then took two more twin beds and put them at the bottom of that, so you had four twin beds kind of put out in a row like that, that's the size of this bed. It's about 13 and a half feet long and about six feet wide. This is a large guy. It's possible that this is actually his uh, casket, so to speak, but you think about a bed that big. This is a big man. And the only reason this is in here that I can imagine is that he wants to point out that the giants you feared have now been slain by your God. The cities have been conquered. The giants have been slain. Your God has prevailed on your behalf. And so these two conquests of these two kings, Sihon and Og, are mentioned repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, um, by name often, to encourage the people to trust in God. Nehemiah, chapter 9, he mentions Sihon and Og. Um, The Psalms, we'll see, address it as well. Sihon and Og were conquered. Moses is going to use it that way with Joshua, just a couple of verses from now. He's going to say, I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. So through the telling of the stories of these two kings, God is strengthening the kingdom. He's strengthening the people for future battles. Essentially, their bumper sticker is, Remember Sihon and Og. Okay? That's their little chant that they would say over and over. It cursed throughout the scriptures. Remember Sihon and Og. Your God won great victories over your greatest fears in those scenarios. It crept into their worship. Psalm 135. They sang about Sihon and Og. It's probably sung to the tune of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Okay? It says, For I know that the Lord is great and that the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, the seas, all the deeps, He it is who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. And who does He mention by name? Sihon, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. So this is the history that he's reviewing to strengthen their faith. As God's people, this is our history. We look back at this and we realize our God is a warrior who fights for his people. We can obey him. We need not fear. We need not give in to fear. Remember Sion and Og. We remember that, and we trust Him. So, not only do we trust God when He says no to us, we trust Him when He says yes to us. Yes, you must go do these things. What has God said yes to you about? What has He said, yes, you must do this? Yes, you must love those neighbors, even your enemies. Yes, you must be a generous people. Yes, you must speak of my son without shame. Yes, you must 
act with absolute integrity. Yes, you must stand against evil. And this time of year, yes, you must pay your taxes. What has God said to you that you must do? It's interesting. Pastors' taxes are really weird. Um, They have all these odd little twists and turns. And uh, in the office, most of us are are using TurboTax because TurboTax has figured out all the twists and turns. But there's a button. If you click that button, you can save thousands of dollars. We're not really supposed to click the button. But if we click the button and claim a certain thing that we're not really supposed to claim, thousands of dollars, one click. But God says, yes, you must pay your taxes. Yes, you must be men of integrity. What is God saying yes to you about? Um, Leonard Sweet uh, has been a, a president of a one of our higher educational institutions, and he writes, one of our students received an appointment from a bishop. And the student did not feel the placement exactly suited his abilities. I overheard him complaining about it to another student, and then the other student said, you know, the world's a better place because Michelangelo did not say, I don't do ceilings. He said her comment stopped me dead in my tracks. I had to admit she was right. If you and I are going to be fruitful in what God is calling us to, then we had better understand that. I reflected on the attitudes of key people throughout the scriptures in the history of the church. And he said the world's a better place because a German monk named Martin Luther did not say, I don't do doors. The world's a better place because an Oxford don named John Wesley didn't say, I don't do preaching in fields. The world's a better place because Moses didn't say, I don't do pharaohs or mass mass migrations. The world's a better place because Noah didn't say, I don't do arcs and animals. The world's a better place because Rahab didn't say, I don't do enemy spies. Because Ruth didn't say, I don't do mothers-in-law. Because Samuel didn't say, I don't do mornings. Because David didn't say, I don't do giants. Because Peter didn't say, I don't do Gentiles. Because John didn't say, I don't do deserts. Because Mary didn't say, I don't do virgin births. Because Paul didn't say, I don't do correspondence. Because Mary Magdalene didn't say, I don't do feet. And because Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. The world, he says will be a better place only if you and I don't say, I don't do, to that which God is asking us, commanding us to do. Remember Sihon, remember Og, and obey your great king. That, as I understand it, is what God is trying to do to his people through the telling of these stories of two kings. So in in this passage, we have two kings... And we have two elephants in the room that we have to address. Um, The first of those elephants is found in chapter 2, verse 30. It says, after Moses makes his appeal, let's let us go through the land, we'll pay you. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. One of the skeptics' websites that I was looking at in preparation for the study said, now let me get this straight. 
uh, God hardens a guy's heart so that he can kill him. Uh, where's the justice in this? It's a tough question. Um, this is not the only time that God has done this. Perhaps more famously, you remember Pharaoh's heart was hardened back in Exodus before they left Egypt. Um, in Exodus 4, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. More broadly, and more uh, not as negatively, we see in Psalm, or Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Scripture teaches that the hearts of kings are directed by God, both to harden and to soften. Um, Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 9, and he says of God, he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is sovereignly and mysteriously shaping the hearts, even of great kings, to accomplish his good purposes for his people. John Piper is a vigorous defender of God's role, his primary role in this heart-turning matter. But listen to what he wisely says. He says, now let me say again, after amassing reasons for believing in God's freedom and mercy and hardening, I have not removed a mystery. I have stated a mystery. God hardens unconditionally, and those who are hardened are truly guilty and truly at fault in their hardened, rebellious hearts. Their own consciences will justly condemn them. If they perish, they will perish for real sin and real guilt. How God freely hardens and yet preserves human accountability, we are not explicitly told. He says it's the same mystery as how the first sin entered the universe. How does a sinful disposition arise in a good heart? The Bible does not tell us. Obviously, a whole lot more could be said and needs to be said about this first elephant and how God sovereignly works in turning a human heart. But I want us to focus our thoughts on this one specific instance here in the heart of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Why would God record these words here? Why would he give us a peek behind the curtain of his secret sovereign work and show his people Show us what he's doing in this king's heart. Why call attention to it at all? What I think God is doing is showing us this secret work, working so that we will fall down and worship him and trust him because of the extent of his sovereignty. That's why he draws it to our attention. It really is stunning. He's at work in the hearts of kings, in the hearts of enemies. When someone opposes you and it's no fault of your own, you can trust that it's within the realm of God's control. The hearts of enemies, even if they be kings, are like a stream of water in the hand of God, being turned to serve His good purposes in the life of His people, even though they be hard. God is at work, even in the hearts of your enemies, for your good in the midst of God's good plan. 
More broadly, God's at work in the midst of fearful things, a very real trial and suffering and opposition. He's at work in a teacher who is out to get you, in a boss who overlooks you consistently, in a spouse who fails you. God is at work in those situations, in those people's hearts. What could be, if you think about it, what could be more terrifying than the kind of battle that these people were facing? It means hand-to-hand combat. And their very lives would be at stake. It's a pretty terrifying prospect. Unless, unless they knew that God was in control of that battle, that he had orchestrated that battle, and that he would prevail in that situation for their good and for the accomplishment of his good plan. So that which comes against you as you walk in obedience to God, he is reminding you, serves his good purposes. It's a tool that God is wielding. The kings are in his hand so much that what must have looked like it was intended for their harm, a giant king opposing them militarily, God was bringing, actually bringing about for his good purposes for his people. Deuteronomy is not trying to answer all our questions about God's sovereignty and our free will. But it is trying to strengthen our faith by giving us a behind-the-scenes peek at the extent of God's sovereign working for our good, even in those who oppose us. He is to be trusted, Moses is teaching us, even when we go to battle. That, too, is in his hands. Now, there's a second elephant, probably a larger one, that's in the very next couple of verses in chapter 2. Sihon came out against us, as God explained. He and all his people to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. And if you are thinking at all, that's very troubling. Um, That God should decree something that leads to the suffering of children. Those who mock our faith um, seize on this, and uh, Richard Dawkins is most notable in that, and he says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, he's not done, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins does not like the God of the Old Testament. But um, honestly, it troubles us too. No survivors, not even the children. Um, What I'd like to do is walk you carefully through a number of scriptures in an attempt to buttress your faith in the goodness and power of God, even in these kind of situations. I'm going to quote at length for some people who are way smarter than me who have addressed this very carefully and very well, and I'll make those articles available to you uh, as well. 
But I want us to think carefully. And I need you to listen carefully. Um, Because in this situation, this is not the only incident of this kind of warfare in Israel's uh, history. Um, There are others. um, 1 Samuel 15 was Saul. Joshua chapter 6, the battle of Jericho. Same kind of decree. Um, Throughout the conquest of the land of Canaan. But that really is where it's focused. On just a generation or two in God's people, in the conquest of the land, seems to be an extraordinary, unique event in our history. Such that if anyone tries to trot these passages out to justify patterns of modern-day warfare for God's people, um, that's, that's not wise. Heath Thomas, who is a professor at Southeastern, has written very wisely on this. He says, It should be remembered that such warfare remains a non-repeatable action within the grand narrative of God's redemption. In terms of military struggle for God's people in God's land, holy war was for one or two generations of Israel and is not for the church today. For the Christian, there is no place whatsoever to take up arms in the manner of Israel to conquer a land. So he's saying to us, this is a unique occurrence that's not to be used to repeat and justify that which we do today. The only thing that's going to be close to that will be the return of Christ, and he's not going to need our help at that point in time in that battle. Now, this was focused, this unique historical event, almost exclusively against a collection of people largely known as the Canaanites. Um, The Canaanites, the Amalekites, and such... um, were perhaps the most corrupt culture that you can imagine. Sam Storms describes it this way. He says, The Canaanites were the most depraved, debauched, degenerate people of the ancient world. They regularly engaged in religious prostitution in which people fornicated with cult priests and priestesses, hoping thereby to encourage the gods to copulate and bring fruitfulness to the land. That's their religion. They practiced child sacrifice. Infants and young children were sacrificed to the fire of the god Molech, and they also gave themselves over to the sexual sins listed in Leviticus 18. Now, here's a sampling of the laws that were given to God's people to protect them when they entered the land. From Leviticus 18, You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your god. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It's a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Now, listen closely. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you, the Canaanites, have become unclean. These were their actual practices. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Um, Sam Storms concludes, Thus the Canaanites received everything they deserved. So what we have in this big troublesome elephant in the midst of the room that is our passage is a singular occurrence historically on a most exercise on a most wicked people, even after grace had been extended them, 
not for years or even decades, but actually centuries. Lee Strobel has a book called The Case for Faith. Um, and in it, he views a Christian apologist named Norman Geisler on this very question. And they, discussing Genesis chapter 15, Geisler says, you have to remember that these people, the Canaanites, were given plenty of opportunity to change their ways and avoid all of this. He said, in fact, if you take all of the Canaanites along with the Amalekites, they had 400 years to repent. That's a very long time. He says, finally, after waiting centuries to give them an opportunity to abandon their path towards self-destruction, God's nature demanded that he deal with their willful evil. He certainly did not act precipitously. So, in this historically unique time, an exceedingly wicked culture had been shown 400 years of patience before God issued this devastating judgment upon them. And Heath Thomas writes that it's not as though every child that had ever lived in Canaan was exterminated. Yes, he acknowledges children suffered and died. But listen to, uh, I found this helpful in balancing all this out. He says, divine wars in the Old Testament actually use typical hyperbolic language to get that point across. When we see God's commands to utterly destroy men, women, and children, and that Joshua killed all that breathed, this language represents the kind of exaggerated language that was employed in these kinds of war texts in the ancient Near East. These are not simple descriptions, but rather hyperbolic expressions. A complementary point to this hyperbolic language is that not the, it's not the only language that was used to describe divine warfare. In other words, God doesn't always say exterminate the Canaanites, wipe them all out. He'll also use more commonly used language like drive them out, dispossess them, the idea of simply removing them from the land. And it is those who resist that, who stay and fight against God's plan, those are the ones that will suffer that judgment. While the destruction of all who lived surely occurred, and there were, no doubt, children who tragically suffered death in this process. Um, Geisler puts it wisely. He says, we have to keep in mind that those who wanted to get out of this situation had already done so. They had ample opportunity through the years. Surely the ones who wanted to be saved from destruction fled and were spared. And the classic case of that is Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who heard of the glory of God's people and repented of her sin and served God's people and was rescued. Um, So the suffering of children is likely less than we may have thought. But yes, the children did suffer. They suffered because of the sinful choices and practices of their parents. When the judgment of God came upon their parents through the nation of Israel, the children suffered as well. Um, You need to realize this is in some ways the way the world works. Children suffer for the sins of their parents, whether that's a firstborn of Egypt or a crack baby born in our day. Whether that's a child who is abandoned or a child who is abused. 
the consequences of sin often harm even the children. And this, at this point, should give us all pause in rethinking that sin that we are clinging to. What are the consequences of doing that? Not just to you, but to those that you love, those that you hold in your arms. Much more needs to be said on this matter. Um, I simply cannot today due to time and ability, but I have posted on our website, I believe it's on the front page in the news banner, two excellent articles to help you think further about this. One is the article I've been quoting by Heath Thomas. The other is an article by, um, or an excerpt from the book, The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, where he interviews Norman Geisler. Both of those links are there. I hope you'll prayerfully read them. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're here today not as a believer, you're here and these are very real um, questions for you, let me encourage you to read that Lee Strobel article that's on our website and then take your Christian friend for coffee and ask them those hard questions. Rob Craig will buy your coffee if you'll let him in on that conversation. He's our outreach pastor and he would love to be a part of that as well, I'm sure, as would so many of us. Let's turn our focus, though, back on this one incident. Why did God require this at this time of his people in this situation? And I think it's because he's really establishing two things. First, he's establishing the supremacy, his supremacy over the gods of Canaan. Again, Heath Thomas says, Biblical divine war breaks the ideological connection between deity and people and land. As the Canaanites were displaced and defeated from their land, their gods were defeated and shown to be impotent and false. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24, shows how Moses grasped this in his prayer. He says, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. This is just after these two battles. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? God is, by this clear um, wiping out of his adversaries, demonstrating for the whole world to know his supremacy over other gods. Again, listen to Heath Thomas. He says, Divine war is not concerned with genocide, or ethnic cleansing, as some have said, but rather it's with eliminating false worship. This is the second purpose. Divine war represents a focused attack upon sinful and idolatrous religion rather than simply an attack on people. Um, To get at this, he suggests that um, you have to address in ancient times more than just people's spiritual lives because they did not separate secular from sacred as we do in the modern world. He said, this is hard for our modern ears to hear, but ancient people saw their national identities tied to their particular place and their particular God. And when those gods, he goes on to say, are defeated and removed from the land, the usurping God is established as supreme. Um, Deuteronomy 
chapter 20 points this out in verses 16 through 18. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. The same declaration. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. God is ferociously protective of his people. And he is decimating those who would seek to influence them with idolatrous practices. He is taking their very lives. This um, sin thing, this idolatry thing is huge to God. He will not tolerate it. He desperately is working to protect his people from it. Not only did the Canaanite children suffer from its consequences, but the very Son of God would die for the same purpose, to deliver his people from their sins. All of this must be held up against the backdrop of the love, the ferocious, fatherly love of God in protecting his people. The simplest verse in the Bible um, makes it clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me close with some thoughts from a man who I think is uniquely qualified to speak to this matter. His name is Marshall Shelley. He's a former editor of Christianity Today magazine. And within a three-month period, Marshall and his wife Susan saw two of their children die. In November of 1991, son Toby succumbed to birth defects after two minutes of life. Then in February of 92, Daughter Mandy, almost two, died of pneumonia. Marshall reflects on how these losses have affected his relationship with God. He says, after losing two children and after four years of reflection, when he wrote this article, he said, I see some aspects of God's character in much sharper focus than before, while others are still behind a glass dimly. I hadn't realized the cost of discipleship. God assigns some people incredibly tough situations. I hadn't realized, he said, since our two children died, I cannot help but pause and wince every time I read the Bible and see afresh the ordeals children faced, often at the hand of God. Sometimes his ways are severe. Then he describes some of those. In Genesis, at God's direction, Ishmael and his mother are evicted from their home into the desert. Young Isaac is bound as a human sacrifice, though soon released. In Exodus, all firstborn sons of the Egyptians are slain by the death angel. Job's children, though probably grown, are killed in Satan's test, sanctioned by God. And this doesn't include the children killed in God's broader judgment, such as the flood of Noah's day, the destruction of Sodom, or the conquest of Canaan. In the story of David and Bathsheba, the adultery and the murder of Uriah no longer hold much interest for me, he writes. Just more evidence of human sinfulness. He says, now I fixate on God's treatment of the two sons produced by David and Bathsheba's union. One, a nameless son, died as God's judgment on David's sin. The second, Jedidiah, meaning loved by God, became Solomon and enjoyed God's most lavish blessing. I ponder that first son's destiny dying as punishment for David's sin. 
in Matthew, all boys in Bethlehem under age two are murdered in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. In John 9, in front of a man blind since birth, Jesus is asked if this suffering is due to his own sins or those of his parents. Jesus explains it is neither, but rather that the work of God might be displayed in his life. A childhood of blindness for God's greater glory? That answer, he says, especially from Jesus, known for his love of children, causes me to tremble. Ultimately, of course, God's own Son is sent to die on a cross. Living for God's glory, he says, is not for sissies. The only way I can gaze upon such severe treatment of children without becoming catatonic is trusting that God's purposes require a stiff price. Redemption, this is what I want us to to hear most clearly, redemption must be ever so much costlier than I imagine. Earth's contamination by sin must be so severe that equally strong medicine is required. And then he says, and even trusting God's purpose, I still occasionally flinch. And this, I think, is perhaps the most single sobering effect that these horrific problems should have on us. We simply do not understand the severity of our sin and its consequences. It is far more terrible than we have imagined perhaps because God is far more holy than we have imagined. What do we invite upon ourselves and those we love when we embrace idolatrous sin? Well, there is more, much more that could be said, but I imagine by now your mind is full. But I hope your heart is, is in encouraged and supported Um, because God is not like we imagined him to be. He is far more holy and he is far more loving towards his people. He will go to war for us. He will sacrifice his son for us. That is how he has demonstrated the love that undergirds these kinds of passages for us. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, in your kindness to us, I pray that my feeble words today might exalt the truth about you in some way that strengthens every person's faith here. Protect each and every one. May Satan have no access to them to sow unbelief or doubt. May the mysteries of your conduct in hearts of kings and the suffering of children be put in their proper perspective with your ferocious love for your people, for us, that's represented supremely in the cross. Lord, we do not fully understand what we choose to trust and to rest in that which is so clear to us, your love and your mercy and your kindness. We are awash with every day. Give us eyes to see. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that we might honor you. 
take pleasure in this declaration, we pray. Amen. Would you stand?